Good morning, everyone. So for the last few chapters of the book of Hebrews, the author has been arguing about the vital importance of simple, simple faith and trust in our Jesus over the long haul, every day, day after day after day. And so beginning in Hebrews 12, 14, he's warning us about some attitudes, some mindsets, or some behaviors that we can adopt in our lives that get in the way, that pollute a simple faith and trust in Jesus. So in verse 14, he says, hey, seek peace with all men, everybody, people who've wronged you, people who've disappointed you, people who've hurt you. Be at peace with everybody. So I think the first thing he's saying is, look, division and strife will eat away at your faith, and it will eat away at your faith for a couple of reasons. Number one, division is almost always rooted in pride. You know, so in other words, hey, you know, well, I think this, and hey, I think this over here, and it's pride that causes us to rise up and disagree with one another, and debate one another, and pride always does what's best for itself. Whereas faith, so it blocks up faith, it stands in the way of faith, because faith would say, no, do what's best for others. Uh, So yeah, division is something that, um, you know, we we should avoid, like the plague, right? So the second problem with division is this, Uh, it'll cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus and put our eyes on whoever it is that we're not at peace with. And you know what that feels like and how, what that stirs up in you. In fact, we'll talk more about what that stirs up in a moment. And then it goes on to say this, and pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, holiness means two things. First, it means purity, but it also means to be set apart, to, to be, uh, it means otherness. In other words, when we, when we say that God is holy, we're not just saying that God is pure. We're saying that he stands alone in the universe. We're saying there is nothing else, no one else like him. He is holy and completely other. Now, the opposite of holiness is worldliness. In fact, we're going to read an example in a few moments of Esau, who's a perfect uh, picture of what worldliness looks like. But I want to define worldliness this way. It's when your mind is just consumed or all tangled up in things like comfort, comfort or betterment. In other words, when your mind is saturated with the world, it is dulled to the purity and the beauty of our God. Your ability to see God, to have faith, even to worship God, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, it just gets inhibited. And so we're told to chase, to pursue it. In other words, to hunt it down, like Jason Bourne, to track it relentlessly. Listen, growing in holiness is an uphill climb. And so if you're riding a bike up a hill and you quit pedaling, what's going to happen? You're going to go backwards. Friends, it's exactly with your, it's, it's exactly the same with your faith. Your faith is either uh, progressing or it's retreating because it is uphill. It's, it's against the flesh. Every one of us in this room have to battle with that part of ourselves, right? Uh, so you, we have to be disciplined in that regard. So it says, pursue holiness with which no one will see the Lord. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, hey, believe in Jesus and you will see the Lord. 
Our life has to be in alignment with our profession. Our values have to be consistent with the teaching of Jesus or we won't see the Lord, right? In other words, what I'm saying is the people who will see the Lord work in their lives aren't just saying they believe in Jesus. They are living surrendered to him. They aren't just talking, they're obeying. And then he goes on to say this, verse 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Now I want to argue something. The NIV here uh, discusses these in two separate thoughts. I don't believe that's accurate. I believe this is meant to be understood as one thought. So in other words, what he's saying is this, see to it that no one misses the grace of God through a bitter root that would grow up and cause trouble and defile many. So in other words, he's saying, look, if someone takes the bait of Satan and they take up an offense or they grow bitterness, that bitterness is going to cause them to miss the grace of God. And, uh, and let me tell you why I think this is true. Because first of all, what was Jesus' overarching New Testament command? He said, a new command I give you. In other words, this command is at the top of the list. Love one another as I have loved you. So when you're bitter against someone, in essence, you're refusing to love them. You're refusing to forgive them. You're breaking, in essence, Jesus' greatest command. And not Notice, too, that he calls bitterness a root. This is so interesting. So what does a root do? It feeds the whole tree. So if a tree takes in that bitterness, it's not going to stay isolated to one branch or a few leaves over here. That bitterness is going to get drawn up into that tree, and it's going to affect, it's going to infect that entire tree, every branch, every leaf. That is what bitterness does to people as well. It doesn't just affect one relationship or one area of their life. It affects their outlook on all of their relationships and on every other. And I can prove this, right? Those of you who've been married more than a couple of times, like, you know, there's triggers from the previous relationship, right? It's like, well, now you're acting just like my husband. Now, anytime somebody says something like that, that's a bitter root talking out loud. And, that's, and he's saying, look, and then the, notice too, not only is it described as a root, he says, look, it spreads. It grows up, it causes trouble and with, with a few, and then it defiles many. And we know this is true as well, because how many of you in the room have ever taken up an offense for someone that you loved? Could be a spouse, could be, uh, you know, a brother or a sister or an employer. Yeah, we've all done that, right? In fact, I think sometimes it's harder when it's your spouse because you want to rise up, you know, to their defense. And, and so that just illustrates what the author here is saying, that bitterness does spread. And this is why we have a core workshop that we teach here called The Bait of Satan. And, and it's this, we say, look, if you have taken the bait of Satan and become bitter or taken up an offense against God, that traps you. In fact, I would argue pastorally that the single greatest stronghold that I observe on a day-to-day -day basis is this one, bitterness. 
I don't think there's anything that, hold, that keeps people from progressing in their faith any more than bitterness. And here's what's so crazy about it. I mean, you know this, right? Bitterness can pop up in the most unexpected of ways. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever taken a really hard test? Yeah, probably most of us in the room. So there's a college sophomore that sweats all semester anticipating a very difficult final exam in his ornithology class. Most of you know that that ornithology is a study of birds, right? Now listen, the difficulty of this final was legendary on campus. So we put in lots of extra hours studying for it. When he walks into the classroom on the day of his final, he is absolutely stunned because there's no blue books, there's no multiple choice questions, no test booklets at all. Instead, there are 25 pictures on the wall. But they're not pictures of the whole bird. It's 25 pictures of bird feet, just the feet. And he's expected to look at just the feet and be about to identify 25 different species of, um, of birds. And so the, the student looks at the professor, he's so angry, and he says, look, this is insane, it can't be done. It must be done, says the professor, this is the final. I won't do it, the angry student said, I'm walking out. If you walk out, you will fail the class and the final. Go ahead and flunk me, the young man says. I'm out of here. No problem, says the professor. Tell me your name. To which the young man rolled up his pants, took off his shoe, and said, You tell me, prof. You tell me. Like I said, some of you are like, What? I... To which, uh, and here's my point, that doesn't, isn't it true that bitterness makes us do and say crazy and insane things to one another? It always, always does, right? Uh, so, and then he goes on into verse 16 and he says this, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. Now we'll talk about Esau in a minute because he's a great example of worldliness, getting so caught up in the next moment, the next meal, the next thing, that there's no room in your heart or mind for, for God. But first it says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. So that's kind of an odd phrase, and I want to define it for you. Sexual immorality is simply having sexual relations with someone who is not your marriage partner. Here's the logic, that when you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in and your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. So using your body in a way, defaming your body in a way that would grieve the Holy Spirit is a terrible thing, right? Because your body is the temple of God. This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the author says, look, run from sexual immorality, flee sexual sins, because all other sins a man or woman commit, they commit outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins even against his own body body. So he says, run from that. Don't get polluted by that. Uh, now, and, and I've seen this in real life. So some of you may know that before I came to Shelbyville Community Church, I was a college pastor. 
And I could always tell when one of uh, the people in my inner, inner circle, could be, could be a guy, could be a, a girl, I could always tell when they, uh, b- when they began to have sex, uh, you know, for the first time. And here's how I would know. I would notice that their love for Jesus was waning. I would notice that their passion for him was just kind of being put out. I would notice that they had no hunger Uh, to be in God's Word anymore, no desire to keep growing spiritually because that sexual immorality in their life was keeping them from progressing, uh, you know, in their faith. Their desire to be in God's Word just dried up. This is why the French, I love this quote, this is from the French philosopher Pascal. He says this, immorality can murder your soul by keeping it from thinking about eternity. I want to say that again. Immorality can murder your soul by keeping it from thinking about eternity. And then he goes on to talk about this Old Testament character, this guy by the name of Esau, and he calls him godless. Another way you could say that is worldly. Uh, So here's Esau's story. Uh, Esau, as the eldest son, had a birthright. And a birthright entitled him, it has to do with both position and inheritance. So, by birthright, the firstborn son inherited the leadership of the family and the judicial authority of the father. Deuteronomy 21 also tells us that uh, the eldest son was entitled to double of the paternal inheritance as the rest of the children. And Esau was so caught up in the next moment, you know, pleasure in the next moment that he was willing to part with that to give it to his younger brother in exchange for a meal that was all that's all he could think about he wasn't thinking down the line he certainly wasn't thinking about eternity all he was thinking about was the next meal and how good that was would be and so he was he couldn't delay gratification to down the line. He had to have it, and he had to have it right now. He had what, what psychologists might call poor impulse control. In fact, a guy by the name of Daniel Goleman wrote a book a few years back that gained uh, widespread acceptance. And in this book, he argued that effectiveness in life is not based on cognitive intelligence, which is what so many of us think, but something he called emotional intelligence. Uh, And at the heart of emotional intelligence, he said, is the ability, hear me, to delay gratification, to, um, to, to not be someone who lives at the mercy of their impulses. And the most, and he cited an experiment. It was called the marshmallow test. I'll tell you, this is a famous example of this. So they put a four-year-old in a room, and they put a big marshmallow in front of these four-year-olds. And then they're told that the experimenter has to go run an errand. So the experimenter, before they leave, they say, look, here's the marshmallow in front of you. If you you wait until I get back, I'll give you another marshmallow. But if you want to just eat the one marshmallow right now, you can. 
So they're testing whether these kids can delay gratification or not. And so they, uh, they developed all kinds of strategies to avoid the temptation of not eating that marshmallow. I mean, they would sing songs, they would tell themselves stories, they would play with their finger. One kid actually bent over and licked the table right next to the marshmallow. He didn't actually lick the marshmallow, but he licked right next to it. Uh, now, what's most amazing is the impact that this one character trait had on these four-year-olds that were part of the experiment because there was a Stanford University research team that tracked all these kids for decades. And here's what they found. That those who were able to wait as four-year-olds grew up to be more socially competent, better able to cope with stress, less likely to give up under pressure than those who could not wait, or what, what we might call marshmallow grabbers. Uh, the marshmallow grabbers, on the other hand, grew up to be more stubborn, more easily upset by frustration, and more resentful about not getting more out of life. Moreover, all those years later, the marshmallow grabbers still struggled to uh, put off or delay gratification. And other studies have shown that poor impulse control is much more likely to be associated with things like delinquency, substance abuse, divorce, and unemployment. This is why Goleman, the author of this book, calls the ability to wait well or the ability to delay gratification, he calls it the master aptitude. And Esau was so worldly, so wrapped up in the next thing, the next purchase, the next meal, the next party, the next vacation. There was no room in his heart for God. And then suddenly, it's just crazy, just, the author just seems to take a hard right in verse 18, seems to kind of go off on a tangent, starts talking about Moses and a smoking mountain, and you're like, what? What is he doing? But it's not a tangent. What he's doing is contrasting the worship associated with the giving of the law with the worship that you and I have the privilege of entering into. So here's the story. Israel had been called to the promised land. They leave Egypt. They're going through the wilderness when they come to this mountain. And God is on the mountain. They can, God's glory is evident on the mountain. And His glory is evident in things like uh, fire and smoke and darkness and lightning and thunder. And because, you know, the presence of God is there. And God tells them to set up a perimeter around the mountain. And, and if anybody crossed that line, they would be killed instantly by his glory. And it was so scary to them. They were so terrified that we're told even Moses said, look, I'm, you know, I'm so scared I might die. And the message was clear, right? A sinful people can't enter into the presence of a holy God. If we even brushed up against God's holiness as sinful people, we would be killed. It would be like tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. That's what it would be like. So the dilemma is, how do we find the permanence and the joy and the fulfillment that only comes from knowing God 
if we're too sinful, too unholy to even be in his presence. I mean, his presence is frightening to me. It's not comforting to me. So they lived in a constant state of fear. What if we haven't been good enough? What if God's not pleased with us? Have we done enough for him? So as they approach God in worship, he's making the point, their only option was fear. And, and what he says is, look, Jesus provides a better worship experience than that. Jesus doesn't provide, a, I mean, listen, let me ask you a question. When was the last time any of you were terrified during a church service? Yeah, you know why? You know why you can answer that way? Because Jesus took care of that problem for every single one of us in the room. See, what he's saying is, look, Jesus was a game changer. Like, he changed even the way that people could approach God and approach God in worship. Um, in fact, think about Jesus' crucifixion. It bears an eerie similarity to Mount Sinai. In G Jesus' crucifixion occurred on top of a small mountain. There was darkness all around. Rocks split. There was lightning. There was thunder. Why? Because uh, you know, he is absorbing the judgment of a sinful people in the presence of a holy God. It's just like Mount Sinai, only it's reversed. Jesus is doing that. So that now when you and I approach God, we do so without fear. Because anything that would ever make God reject me was put on Jesus. And he was rejected instead of me. See, Jesus took my sin and I was given his righteousness. Theologians call this the great exchange. Oh, Jesus, you'll take my sin? Okay, great. I'll take your righteousness. This is so powerful. What we're told, what this really means is that Jesus was shaken for you and me so that our lives could be unshakable. So the author goes on to say, look, instead of approaching God with fear like they had to under the old covenant... No, it's a new day. It's completely different. We can approach God from a standpoint of security. A security. In other words, he says, we have in Jesus a city that cannot be shaken. Now, listen, it's so important to understand that a city, in the time that, that this book was written, represented a place of safety. There was strength in numbers. Almost every city had a wall. You've probably seen this on movies. So when a, a foreign army would come to attack a city, they would have to figure out a way to get past the walls of the city. So the city represents anything that would be secure and safe and give me peace. So see, the foundation of that security uh, is, is the perfect love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, his blood assures us of our absolute acceptance and his resurrection of our complete and utter healing. So there's security there instead of fear. And then he says, look, there's also unbounded joy. There's innumerable angels in joyful celebration. And some scholars say you could read this literally like, hey, it's, you could translate it angels in party clothes. Literally that way, angels in party clothes. In other words, God's presence is like this gigantic party, which totally messes up some of our images that we conjure up as it relates to God. In fact, 
Throughout the scriptures, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is often likened to a banquet or a wedding feast or a wedding reception. Uh, uh, in fact, there's a guy by the name of Tony Campolo wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. And in this book, he relates an experience he had late one night. He'd, he'd flown to Hawaii to speak at a conference. He, he was a pastor. And so he was in Hawaii going to speak at this conference. And because of the time change, he was getting up super early in the morning. There was only one diner on the whole island that was even open. And so I'm just going to read the story the way he writes it. So he says, As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open and to my discomfort in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, so they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, See, what, what, what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I get one now? He writes this, When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the woman had left, and I called over the guy behind the counter, and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she's in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday, I told him. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? That's great, he said. I love it. That's a great great idea. Call him to his wife who did the cooking in the back room. He shouted, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. Uh, this guy wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and I'll decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was the guy's name behind the counter. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the birthday cake. So at 2.30, he writes, the next morning I was back at the diner. I picked up some crepe paper decora decorations. I decorated that diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good, he writes. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15 in the morning, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle. Her friend had to grab her arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it, just began to weep. Harry gruffly mumbled, yo, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he did. 
Then he handed her a knife and told her, Cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off of it, she said, she slowly and softly said, Look, Harry, is it all right with you if, like, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what, what I really want to know, is it okay if I keep the cake for a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street, a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, carrying it like it was the holy grail, and walked slowly to the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. So not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say we all pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a preacher to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do, he says. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed, and I prayed that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter, and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? And in one of those moments where just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that, Harry said. And wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? Well, that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. And I don't know where we got the other one that is often so cold and distant and removed and judgmental. And the reason that God came to create churches like that is because those churches are meant to reflect the values of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a party for left out people, for left out people, for left out people. That's the beauty of our Jesus. Uh, yeah, because the kingdom of God, before it's anything else, friends, it's a party. And then he says, look, there's going to be deep and rich community in your worship. He says, look, you've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And then finally, he says, look, you've come to Jesus who is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is so amazing. This is so awesome. So in Genesis chapter 4, Cain, many of you know the story, had killed his brother Abel. And when Cain tried to deny it to God, God said, Cain, what are you talking about? Your murdered brother's blood cries out to me from the ground for vengeance. So we murder, so fast forward, right? We murder Jesus, but his blood cries out from the ground, not for vengeance, but for forgiveness. 
See, Abel says, darn right, I want my murder avenged. Jesus says things like this, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't even understand. See, this is why he would say that, you know, uh, that uh, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what that means is that instead of approaching God in fear and trembling like Israel had to do, we can approach him with confidence and awe and wonder. In fact, this is the last uh, sentence in the whole verse, verse 28. Therefore, worship God in awe and reverence. He's saying this, look, Jesus was a game changer in the way that people uh, think about and approach God. Because of him, you stand in awe of God and reverence for what he's done and how he feels about you. Now, um, I got a bone to pick because some versions translate this word at reverence or awe as fear like to worship in fear. But I want to be clear, this is not like fear like terror feel, fear. Um, in Christ, right, we can't be shaken, so there's nothing to fear. Think of it this way. Think about how a young child might obey a good father in the sense that that young child respects his dad and he loves his dad, so he wants to, he wants to please him. And I'll tell you this, friends, awe and reverence for God, it'll keep us from all those things that he mentioned at the beginning that can, that can um, accumulate in our heart, that bitterness or worldliness. When we have an awe and reverence for God that we carry around with us through, through the day, our heart stays crowded with that affection instead of all that junk that piles up. See, listen, worship is what rescues our heart uh, from hardness and cynicism. Worship is what keeps our heart soft and open and moldable, pliable to God. Let me say this. If you aren't growing as a worshiper, if you aren't growing as a worshiper, your heart will slowly, over time, grow bitter, resentful, cynical, and cold. It is the worship of God that rescues you and I from that. This is why we have this as a core value. Worship is one of our core values. We say it this way, we will pray with bold expectation and we will worship with great celebration in response to God's goodness. And I want to be clear. I want to talk about what is worship. What, what, what is worship? Here's what it is. Worship is my moment-by-moment -moment response to God for who He is and what He's done. I want to say it again. Worship is my moment-by-moment -moment response to God for who He is and what He's done. Now listen, when it comes to worship, it's not a matter of if I'm going to worship. See, every one of us in the room, we're all hardwired for worship. The question isn't if I'm going to worship. The question is, how am I going to worship and what am I going to worship? And we're going to talk about this at length next week as we talk more about a city and the difference between having a life that's shakable and unshakable. But let me just say this. Paul says that when you worship something, you serve it. In other words, it enslaves you. And, and, and anything that you worship, the Bible would call that an idol. 
And it can be anything. Idols can be good things. And let me just set the stage for next week. But listen, whatever your idol is, it will break your heart over and over and over again. It will let you down in every way imaginable. But you will cling to it and you will be hurt by it over and over and over again. And I will make that point, you know, next week, right? So, so all that to say this, I'm going to call up um, Brandon and our worship team. In a moment, we're going to sing a song together, and it's a beautiful song. It's called Gratitude. And so the, a song couldn't be more fitting than today. Because, friends, I mean, we've said, look, Jesus isn't just an add-on. He's a game changer. I mean, he's at the center. And so just how grateful should we be? that he took the wrath of God that I deserve, that you deserved, on himself. So, um, so as Brandon begins to sing, I want you to be mindful. I want you to pay attention. Try not to, try not to be like Esau, right? Thinking about what you're going to eat after church today. You know, what's that next meal going to be? Engage with the words. Wrestle with the song. Think it through. Offer it to God with a whole heart. Not a heart that's preoccupied with other things. So can I just pray that for you and for us together? Let's talk to God together. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for challenging us from your word. Thank you for growing us. God, you're so good. You've done so much. You changed all the rules of the game. So we give you thanks. And we give you praise. And we do that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.